This episode is sponsored by Arc IT, and you'll find out more about them later on in the episode. Hi there, I'm Evan Troxel. Welcome to my podcast about how technology is changing the architectural profession. Welcome back to the podcast. My name is Evan Troxel, and the Troxel Podcast is where we explore how technology is changing the profession of architecture. In this episode, I welcome Dr. Daniel Davis. Normally, based out of New York, Daniel is a senior researcher at Hazel, focusing on the relationship between people, space, and design technology. Prior to joining Hazel, Daniel was the director of research at WeWork and a research assistant for Anthony Gaudi's Sagrada Familia. If you've never been, you should probably visit because the Sagrada Familia in Barcelona is one of the most amazing buildings I've ever visited, um, and you might want to visit a WeWork too. Speaking of amazing places, Daniel originally studied architecture in New Zealand and later did a PhD in computational design at RMIT University in Australia. Daniel is a regular columnist for Architect Magazine, and his research has appeared in a variety of publications, including Wired, Fast Company, and the Harvard Business Review. I will put links to some of his most recent articles in the show notes for this episode. He's now working in New Zealand during the pandemic, and is arguably one of the best places to be for so many reasons, and maybe next time I can fly there and have another great conversation with him in person. All right, I think that's enough of the pre-show. So now, without further ado, please enjoy my wide-ranging conversation with Dr. Daniel Davis. Daniel, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you here and meet you. This is fantastic. Yeah, great to meet you as well. I think uh, last time our our paths actually crossed, uh, we were at the Designing Futures Council meeting in La Jolla, where you were on a panel, and I took furious notes during that panel. Who who were the other speakers there? Tyler Goss. Yep. And Alex. um, Alex Pollock. Right. And then Corey. Corey Brugger. And then there was um, Heath. Oh, yeah, yeah, Heath. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you guys, you guys had a, a fantastic talk there and i that whole event it's very it was a very kumbaya kind of a moment for architects and I, that's what conferences i think should be it takes you back to why why we do what we do in the first place and i think the premise behind that get together was really around technology and how it is changing the profession but how it's really enabling architects to take control of the profession back and rethink why we do what we do and and a big theme that came out of that was like architects can help change the world in very big ways in a in a by focusing on people and it really inspired me to actually create an entire presentation to start to at at our firm rethink you know at least a piece of our business to think much more globally i think that was a big theme that we saw coming out of that where it was really the first time i had seen the data points about architects affecting 1% of the world's built environment, you know, which is funded by 1% of the population. And so really, we continue to compete within that very small margin and whittle away smaller and smaller because we're so competitive, right? We're bred to be competitive at every possible place. And I felt like I helped reframe that there's 99% out there that we could participate in and contribute to to make a bigger difference. So I wanted to start off and just say thank you guys for creating that inspiration. It was fantastic. Cheers. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that was a really just a great event, right? Like it's just a hundred people. So it's kind of intimate and um, 
you're connecting with a lot of people there. And then I also thought for us in particular, we'd been to a lot of tech events and they're talking about technology and service of like, I don't know, just like maybe kind of small productivity improvements to firms um, through say like automation and stuff mm-hmm. like that. We really wanted to kind of take it back a little bit and talk more about like, what is it that we're actually doing with this? Like, why why are we so invested in this? And what what could we actually achieve if we got together and kind of pushed that technology hard? It really forces you to think about how much overlap there is between everything that firms are doing and not working together, right? They're, they're doing it on their own. And like Nathan Miller has said before, you know, everybody's got a stadium bowl generator and they've all built it from scratch, right? For, for example. And there's things that we do on projects from a blank page every single time that we don't need to do. And it, I, again, I, in order to be effective at a larger scale, there has to kind of be a, a collaborative movement that everybody gets on board and is willing to share because those are not differentiators anymore. Yeah, I think firms are really sometimes competing on the wrong kind of terms, right? Or the wrong in the wrong game. And that there is more kind of opportunity for um, some form of collaboration that might might help lift the industry as a whole rather than just going going at it um, toe-to-toe on each kind of grasshopper script. Yeah. I think I think what's interesting about this and I, it leads I think it at least our first topic about Autodesk and and how much control there is over the industry with the Revit product. And it's interesting to me that we're even all using the same platform. Like that shows like what a big problem this is and how there isn't really a fundamental way that everybody uses it the same way. Everybody could potentially be using it very differently. I mean, I know in in our firm, there's people who use Revit the same way that they used it 10 years ago, 15 years ago, because it has been such kind of a, it's moved at such a slow pace. It it doesn't look a lot different. Like obviously there was a kind of a UI refresh at the 2010-ish era to the ribbon. But other than that, it's kind of just been this very slow, methodical, minor update kind of a thing. And it kind of leads us to this, this idea of this open letter that the UK architectural industry published right and this is what you wrote about in architect magazine like maybe you can set the stage for for your article what you wrote about it was a very interesting article because you didn't make it all about architects and obviously autodesk doesn't think about it only as architects anymore either right and that's probably why architects are feeling this way but maybe you can just set up the topic of architects versus autodesk here and and we can jump into it yeah, so I guess like the kind of context to that, and it's a context I think most of the listeners will be familiar with, which is that for, I mean, probably a decade now, Revit's been a really dominant platform in how people deliver buildings. So estimates that I've seen have been anywhere from 90 to 80% of kind of large firms in America are using Revit. And what in my mind is kind of wild about that is this one piece of software firms are using it to design single family houses and they're using it to design skyscrapers and they're using it to design stadiums and it kind of does everything right and a lot of the kind of complexity of Revit is that people have to go back in and modify Revit so that it does the particular thing that they actually need to do because Mm -hmm. it's so so general and so broad and so I guess in that kind of background there had been this perceived, I guess, like stagnation of Revit as a software platform. And then I think on top of that, a lot of the angst within the industry is that Revit's gone through a whole bunch of licensing changes. So 
it used to be a software that you brought a single kind of box and you own that software forever. And they've moved into a subscription model, much like Adobe, where you pay for Revit month to month or year to year. Um, and you're kind of locked into that subscription for life, basically. Mm-hmm. And I think on the backs of a lot of that, uh, there had been this growing frustration within the industry. So certainly people that I've spoken to, like this open letter that came out is not the only letter that's been produced. And it's not the only kind of piece of collective action that architects have tried to take to get um, Autodesk to listen. But for whatever reason, this particular letter, which was signed by some big firms like Zaha Hadid, it really got a lot of traction. And in the letter, they're basically saying that, you know, Revit's kind of stagnated for a long time. We've gone through all these kind of licensing pain. Uh, we need some help here because it's really affecting our businesses. And in my article, I was particularly interested in understanding, there'd been a lot of kind of discussion about what Autodesk could do or what Autodesk should do. And I was more interested in trying to understand like from Autodesk perspective, what is it that they will do? Mm-hmm. Um, because those are two different things. Absolutely. <laughs> I think I think uh, an appropriate question is, realistically, will Autodesk do anything? They've talked about other alternatives that they're working on for the, for many years now, and they've changed the name almost every year as well. And it kind of keeps people guessing, like, are they really doing anything? Like, what does a name change mean? Does it mean anything? Is that just smoke and mirrors to say, like, something new is coming, and it keeps people guessing, um, because, I mean, the truth of the matter is, and you talk about it in your article, the changes that have, that have come even most recently are things that people have been asking for for a decade. And I think most people would, you, you also say this in your article, there are some people who want updates to come quickly, and there's other people who are like, please don't change it, right? So there's a very different kind of set of expectations that people have upon the software, you also state in there that the architectural profession is known for its slowness to change. And so we're kind of just plugging along with the software at this point. And it, it is interesting to kind of think about all of the different things at play here, because there are quite a few, and it is complicated. It's not as simple as, you know, these 17 firms and, and what they want. I mean, those are genuine, real pains, and people who work in large firms who have to deploy the software totally get that. It's a pain in the ass to go through and set up a BIM 360 project. It's hard to manage users when it's locked to their name. Like people do leave companies, they join companies, right? And it's locked to their name. So Autodesk doesn't make that easy. Um, And um, I think that's part of it, right? It's just people just want things to get easier and easier does feel like better. um, And that doesn't really feel like it's happening. And on the other hand, it's like we've got 90% of the market. We actually don't need to change anything. So I think that comes back to the question, like realistically, what is Autodesk actually going to do? Which is like where, where you just kind of ended the, your preamble there to the, to the article. Yeah, and I think that's some of the kind of misconceptions that I see around the letter is a lot of people are sort of, you almost think of Autodesk as this organization that's just sitting around like unsure of what they should do next, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> that like if they just send them like the right feature list, um, some product manager within Autodesk is kind of like, oh my God, like, why didn't I think of that? I'm yeah. just going to implement this and everything's right. going to be right. And of course, when you talk to people inside Autodesk, they're smart, intelligent people. They're cranking out a lot of work. They're busy. They have large teams. And 
they have a priority list that's different to what say a BIM manager's a particular kind of feature list that a BIM manager has, but they're, they're aware of like all these kind of problems and all of these issues. So I think to me, the kind of question becomes like, if they know of it, like why haven't they done anything about it? And I think in part, it has to do with their kind of market share that they have like such a dominant position in the industry. They don't really have an incentive to make any major changes because things are going pretty well. And if you're kind of thinking about it from Autodesk perspective, which is I'm a large tech company, but I need to grow even faster. There's not really much more that you can kind of extract from the architecture market because you're almost at saturation there. And so for them, I think a lot of their strategy goes into um, things like the construction market, which is a bigger market and potentially far more valuable. So you can think of the architecture market as almost like they're kind of beachhead into that. Um, they need to make sure that architects are happy and satisfied and that um, they continue using their product. But I suspect that you'll see them push more and more into this kind of world of construction. I just had a conversation with uh, John Turner from GAFCON, who is a member of the Digital Twin Consortium. And that consortium exists to push BIM further down the road into a long-term relationship with an owner. They really work on the owner's behalf to extract value over decades beyond the delivery of the building. And if I was Autodesk and I can lock in a customer for the next 30 or 40 years, that's something that you really want to be looking at versus an architect who, I mean, obviously the architect's offices are going to continue practicing and continuing to renew their subscriptions but they are a very small piece of that construction process and lifetime of the building, um, whether it's the physical lifetime or the technology lifetime of that building as well. Yeah, and we should give Autodesk credit here as well, right? Like, Absolutely. This is them developing the market for BIM, whether it's working with governments or working with building owners or working with structural engineers. And if you were to rewind the clock maybe 20 years, there's maybe an argument to be made that architects should have been in that position and yeah. they should have been the ones educating the market and they should be the ones that are establishing these 20 year relationships with owners. But for whatever reason, architects have kind of felt pretty comfortable, I think for many firms to kind of take it, take a back seat and let someone else be in the driver's seat. Yeah. And the kind of consequence of that is that Autodesk is leading the industry and where Autodesk goes, um, most of the industry is going to end up going to. Yeah, I mean, when you think about that kind of lock-in where the contractor has the software, the owner has the software, the facilities management group of the owner use the software to, maybe they're going to use a digital twin for its true purpose and simulate potential outcomes and then duplicate that in the physical world, or maybe they're just going to use it to maintain an inventory of building components or, or whatever. For the next several decades, that is a quite a different... And and a, and a quite a brilliant move, like you're you're talking about, to be able to strategize that. And when the architects are already locked in, and now owners are asking for RVT files by name, what else can you do? And so it really does seem to me like to you you can't achieve that through an open letter. And I and Autodesk, like you you mentioned earlier, like they're they're not going to try to extract maybe more from this platform. It is twenty plus years old. At, at some point, like you just actually have to start over with new modern software ideas and standards in place rather than 
these really old fl- frameworks that they're continually band-aiding. Yeah, yeah, I think you're starting to see them start to do some of that with the kind of move to BIM 360 and maybe de-emphasizing some of Revit in that process. But there's also, I think, the possibility, we're seeing a lot of startups at the moment kind of popping up, right? Um, whether they're groups that kind of take on a really discrete part of the problem, like TestFit, or whether they're platforms that are trying to take on um, the more kind of infrastructural side of it, like Hyper. And it's not clear which ones of those are going to be the most successful, but it's also, I think, pretty conceivable that if any of them were to really pose a challenge to Revit, that Autodesk has the money to just buy them and mm. turn that into the next next platform. Don't say it. Yeah, so, so <laughs> I think what's interesting about that is that they're each trying to be a piece of a puzzle and Autodesk is trying to be the whole puzzle, right? Like Revit mm. is a platform that is trying to do it all and it doesn't mean it's going to do it all really well. And they even, you mentioned it through the spokesperson that you talked to in your article, like they recognize and they'll say it, they'll use it as part of their story. Like, no, we don't do it all. There's these other value add partners or not really partners, but pieces to the puzzle that will help augment the deliverable, help augment the platform to really do what you need it to do. So it's a very interesting kind of, I mean, they, they own that, right? They know that it doesn't do everything for everybody and they don't need to do that anyway. They probably it's not worth it. I'm sure it's not worth the development time to solve everybody's little problems that are different from somebody else's. But it is interesting to think about kind of these disruptive technologies potentially. We don't even know yet, but they are they're pieces of a puzzle. They're not the whole puzzle. So and that's kind of how they they fly under the radar for quite a while and eventually kind of eat away at new customers that aren't asking for that old thing anymore. Um, which you, you get a little bit into Clayton Christensen's theory of innovation in there as well, right? So it, it is a kind of interesting, all of these things that are at play here, and it, it makes for some interesting kind of armchair quarterbacking. You can pop some popcorn and watch all this kind of unfold, but it is is really tough to live it, too. Like The, the profession is living in it, and I think they feel pretty um, uncertain about that future. And And to your point, because of their lack of intimate involvement in the direct deciding what the direction is and just kind of purchasing off the shelf software to to do that they're not in that part of the equation to actually decide where it goes because they've chosen not to yeah i think for me one of the more surprising parts of the article i really tried to look for a firm in america that had like a large firm that had adopted rivet and moved off it at some stage and I asked around and I asked around and I just I couldn't find, find any example yeah. of a firm that's done it. That's crazy. I think that's something that I could speak directly to because you're you and you you had all the points in the article regarding content creation, regarding training your staff. All of those things are kind of the unforeseen side effects of what it takes to adopt a real platform and do it well like you have to do all that other stuff too it's not just installing a new piece of software as hopefully everybody knows yeah yeah for sure and i could see a future that's sort of like a death by a thousand paper cuts right where it's like individual kind of small components are taking on bigger and bigger parts of that um, core revit platform and eventually the revit platform Maybe it just becomes a documentation tool. Maybe mm-hmm. it kind of mm-hmm. just disappears altogether. But um, yeah, I don't think it's, I couldn't imagine a big firm at the moment not using Revit in some capacity. 
Yeah. 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 It goes beyond their own staff too, right? It's all the consultants that are collaborating on the project as well. They're forced to use the same software as the architect. And then the contractor is going to take that and do what they can with it or, you know, and, and push it down the line even farther. So you're talking about some major shifts for that to happen. It does seem pretty impossible. And what's interesting to me is I'll see on, on Twitter when somebody brings up a, a gripe about Revit, there's always going to be one or two people who are like, use ARCHICAD, right? Just use ARCHICAD. And, and it's like, yeah, that sounds fantastic. It sounds ideal. It's not going to happen. There are so many things tied to this thread that you, it's very difficult to move it. Yeah, I spoke to one person for the article that had seriously looked at moving their firm off Revit onto Archicad. And in terms of price, it was a good deal. In terms mm-hmm. of like features, it seemed like it was going to work out. But they were just so locked in, particularly with the contracts that they had with their clients, that they they couldn't shift off Revit um, because that would mean losing work, basically. Um, yeah. Yeah. I. You mentioned something about BricsCAD. Are there other viable alternatives that you see out there? I mean, we've mentioned ARCHICAD. Obviously, there's Vectorworks, which is kind of like ARCHICAD's little sibling and under the same umbrella of the Metcheck. Yeah, I think there's some of these kind of platforms nibbling around the edges. And then I guess also it's probably worth mentioning that what we're talking about is pretty unique to the United States. So if you go to Japan or if you go to Europe or you go to even Australia, the dominant CAD platform isn't always Revit. It may be Vectorworks or it may be AutoCAD. And so there's this kind of regional geographic differences in which kind of platform is taking off. Yeah. And yeah, I think there may be some of these, they're like viable alternatives, but there's so much kind of locking in the industry in the mm-hmm. US that it doesn't really seem like any of them are making good inroads. Yeah. Interesting. Well, I don't know what the answer is there. It just seems, like I said, just pop some popcorn and watch because I don't feel like there's much we can do. All you can do is vote with your dollars, right, and go somewhere else. Um, but that takes that takes a lot of work and rolling up the sleeves and getting the hands dirty to make that happen. And, and the bigger the firm, the harder that is, I'm sure. Yeah. I put it in the article, I think, like, one of the opportunities that architecture firms have is some form of kind of collective negotiation, right? Like mm-hmm. we each deal with Autodesk kind of one-on-one right. as an individual firm. And I think of an organization like the AIA, which is back in the day, they were setting prices and stuff for like what architects charge. So to me, it's conceivable that an organization like that, if they were to really step up and say that this is an issue that's kind of affecting our constituents, and on behalf of them, we're going to kind of step in and negotiate some of that relationship. Maybe they could kind of get some traction. But I think as it kind of stands, everyone's sort of going in a different direction and submitting their own kind of list of features to Autodesk of things that they would like. <laughs> and then Autodesk is just like picking and choosing which ones kind of make sense. But it's not a coordinated effort to gain back control over what's going on. Yeah, it's interesting to even think about kind of the overall earnings of the software platforms that Autodesk has control of. And I believe last year, AutoCAD was still like 35% of their revenue. Just to give people an idea of, I mean, Revit's going to be around for a very long time. There's going to be new platforms out, at least one, and Revit's still going to be here for a very long time because of that slow adoption curve. And it's just going to be on maintenance mode, if if that. 
yeah, it'll be some diehard in like 20 years still <laughs> running that Revit version. Yeah. It is interesting kind of to link this up to the book that you wrote such a great article about, and you kind of provided Cliff's notes uh, on it, Daniel's notes here, on on the future of the professions and how Autodesk has become this kind of gatekeeper of how to deliver architecture, right? And mm-hmm. and the the thesis of the future of the professions and why it why that book has been kind of so widely accepted as an oracle of sorts for technology and how it's affecting this kind of disruption that's happening to the profession, not to the software companies. It, it's very interesting to kind of think about how Autodesk themselves are this kind of gatekeeper of of at least a, a delivery method, meaning the software, whereas architects are the gatekeeper of how to get buildings, right? And they kind of do, they kind of are on the same playing field then at that point. Yeah, you could almost say that they're on the same team, I think, in that mm. if, to just step back, the kind of future of the professions is looking at like what might happen, not just to the architecture profession, but to all professions, whether right. that's kind of medical or teachers or whatever. Um, and you could think that the kind of fate of the architectural profession, in some respects, may be the fate of Autodesk, which is to say that if you had a company that really, say like WeWork, for instance, say if they were to really deliver office buildings in a completely new way, and didn't rely on the kind of traditional design bid build model, mm-hmm. um, but they're this kind of vertically integrated firm, and maybe they develop their own kind of software in house. Suddenly, you're kind of routing around that traditional kind of pathway of how architecture is delivered, and through that kind of routing around Autodesk itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting to think of. I mean, that book really spells out something that again, people should pay really close attention to, right? Uh, And I think that that's hard for most architects because they're so busy. It is a very hard job. It is a tough profession to work within. And because of that, I think it's very tough to step back and look at what's going on on the larger playing field. Um, It does seem like that doesn't happen enough. And a book like this that comes along and kind of spells it out, I don't know how widely... Um, applied this book has been to leadership within the architectural industry? Do you know if it's... Obviously, it started out in the law profession, right? And then it kind of expanded from there because people kept coming up to the Suskins during presentations and saying, hey, this is... I noticed this is happening in my profession too. And that's what led them to really write and and broaden their scope to other professions. Yeah. I've been surprised when I kind of interview people for my writing and stuff, how often this book comes up. Like, Mm-hmm. It seems like the sort of thing that a lot of people have read and maybe they aren't talking about it as much, but I think a lot of people in the industry have taken it on and understand kind of what's going on in there. And from my point of view, the kind of successful aspect of the book is that it's, I mean, we talk about architecture so much and about the future of our profession, but most of the time we're kind of just looking at what like avant-garde architecture firms are doing and sort mm-hmm. of saying that, where they are in 10 years or 15 years time, the rest of us are just going to kind of catch up. Mm. And what this book does is it looks at not just architecture firms, but like you're saying, like legal firms or doctors and stuff like that. 
that's saying that basically all these kind of organizations have the same kind of situation that they they deliver basically the same service in the same manner, but it's a slightly different kind of outcome. And that the challenges that they're facing in their profession kind of mirror or parallel a lot of the challenges that other professionals are facing in their in their situation. And that where say the legal profession goes is perhaps a better indicator of where the kind of architectural profession will go than what a leading architecture practice is doing right now. Mm-hmm. So what kind of examples would you attribute to kind of some of the potential outcomes that this book is predicting? It seems to me like some of the ones you mentioned earlier, like HIPAR, TestFit, UpCodes. I mean, these are all platforms designed around putting the tools in the hands of anybody, right? Not just architects. I mean, even Autodesk and Revit itself, you don't have to have any kind of qualifications to use the software and do whatever you please with it, right? So it is kind of interesting to think about how these are all tools that have that similarity and how they are all, you know, as they say, you know, disintermediating the gatekeeper. They are doing the runaround, right, the, to get to what the information that they need. And I think if, if you look at Google, if you look at so many examples out there of successful um, attempts and actual, you know, they made it happen doing just that. They provide people with information that they want and need, at, and it's right at their fingertips at any moment. And we run a serious risk of that. I, I remember hearing a story from a, a colleague of mine back in the day who was on the board at NCARB, and he was just like, yeah, I don't know what the future of this profession is, but thank God we've got stamps, right, that, that we have to stamp buildings. And I'm like, is that seriously the only thing that's the plug in the dam, right, it, that an architect yeah. is necessary to build a building larger than X? That's crazy because I can guarantee you that any accountant or lawyer or well-to-do person with lots of money would do would skip the architect line if they could. They see it as red tape to getting their building. They don't necessarily see the value in that process. Yeah, and I think, I mean, a really dystopian kind of view of what the profession might become is that in some respects, it might just be that kind of stamps, stamping service, right? That even within an architecture firm right now, there's a lot of people are kind of specialists within a firm that aren't necessarily on track to become a licensed architect. Mm-hmm. So they might be working in sustainability or they might be working in BIM or they might be working in marketing communications. And they're important parts of an architecture firm. They're important parts of designing good environments, but they exist kind of outside of that traditional model of like, what someone needs to do in order to become an architect. And so, yeah, I could almost see that kind of diminishing within the firm itself, right? Let's take a short break from the conversation to talk about this episode's sponsor. As business owners and architects, how often do we think about our IT provider? Typically, only when things go wrong. And for many of us, unfortunately, this happens too often especially with the latest emphasis on remote work. I know I had to deal with my fair share of IT fire drills. Not pleasant at all. ArcIT, however, is a different kind of company. They specialize in serving architecture, design, and engineering firms. Their goal is to help you use technology as a competitive advantage. This means that they understand your technology stack and won't waste your time and money learning how your tools work within your process. Combine this with industry-leading response times, proactive remote hardware management, solid disaster recovery and backup solutions, and enterprise-grade security management. 
And yet, all of the above are just table stakes for a solid IT company. Arc IT goes a step further. They become your strategic partner when it comes to planning, budgeting, and integrating new technology into your business processes. All of this sounds expensive, right? Nope, because Arc IT is highly specialized for our industry. Their pricing is on par, or in some cases, even lower than other IT providers. Arc IT is transparent and publishes pricing on its website. Your business deserves a competent, responsive, and proactive IT partner. So reach out to Boris, the Arc IT founder and CEO, for a free consultation. And go to getarcit.com, that's G-E-T-A-R-C-H-I-T.com, and click work with us. So yeah, I mean, what kinds of examples do you see um, that are starting to make the predictions of this book come true in our profession? Yeah, there's a number of them. Um, one of the things they talk about in the book a lot is routinization of work. Mm-hmm. So we have this view of kind of creative work and, and architectural design that it's this sort of one-off genius moment where Hours it just work. happens and it's yeah, yeah really fluid and you have these unique teams that just get it done. And this is true of other kind of professions as well. You know, like the kind of genius lawyer that comes up with some crazy argument and a trial or whatever it is. But what that kind of saying is that a lot of this kind of work that we think of as being really unique and one-off, that we're finding ways to kind of systematize it. And you're seeing that in architecture and kind of the two extremes of the field, right? You have in one case, these really, um, really unique and wonderful buildings, like, I don't know, like, Guggenheim Bell Bayer, right? And it's so unique and so different and so difficult to construct. You can't do that in a kind of fluid, just loose process. Like they, although the building looks like really um, out of this world, the process to design it has to be really kind of regimented and systematized Mm -hmm. because if it wasn't, it just wouldn't come together at the end of that process. Then at the kind of other extreme of that, you have, projects like housing developments or um, even what's happening with some of the say like modular construction stuff at the moment where you have this kind of repetition that's building up in some of these practices where they're either doing the same project over and over or they're doing slight variations on the same project and they're getting kind of these scales of efficiency um, just through doing the work again and again and so at those kind of two extremes of either these like really unique projects with really kind of repetitive projects you're getting this degree of systematization within the process and i think that's something that's really kind of coming through Mm. Um, i guess like another thing that they talk about a lot in the book is the sort of blurring lines between the professions that architecture used to be this pretty it's pretty easy to find what an architect did and what they didn't do and you're starting to see a little bit of kind of intermixing, I guess, a different profession. So one example would be like, say, workplace strategy. That That's sometimes done by furniture manufacturers. It's sometimes done by independent consultants. It's sometimes done by architecture firms. And so that kind of early phase of the design process isn't always done by architecture firms at the moment. It might be kind of done by other organizations. So that's kind of other organizations sort of encroaching on something that might have traditionally been mm-hmm. within the kind of realm of architecture. And then you go the other way and you see like architecture firms like Snohita, I think they do things like signage and graphic design, right? Yeah, and right. the expanding what they're doing beyond just thinking about 
the building. Um, I mean, Arab Foresight's another kind of group that's doing stuff like that. They're saying that like clients are coming to us with problems. A building may be a solution to that problem, right? But another solution may be like a reorganization of your company, or it may be um, some other kind of aspect that solves that without needing to create a new kind of um, entity within the world. So many things we could talk about right there. I think that where you ended up there talking about the difference kind of between this fascination with vertical companies and horizontal companies, uh, I should say versus horizontal companies. I think a lot of people are looking at the vertical companies with, you know, their mouth is drooling, right? They're looking at what these companies can do and they, they, they design it, they build it, they operate it, they maintain it, they sell space as a product. It's very, it's interesting because I think that it, it generates a lot of kind of that ideal, you know, clients are not the answers to your problems mentality that's drilled into architects during design school. You, you are the, the genius. And by controlling all of it, you can hang on to that all the way through the process versus companies like what you're talking about with Snohetta and going horizontal and saying, or air up and saying, you know, the answer may not be a building. It might be a user experience package. It might be a layer of environmental design. It might be any number of things. And they, they're like the one-stop shop to provide the total experience. If it is a piece of architecture, they're going to do all of the things, right? Those are two very different, very different models. And it's interesting to me to think of like the way technology is coming into this. It does seem to play well for the verticals, um, especially if they're willing to take it upon themselves to, you know, like a visual effects house would. We're going to use a platform, but we're going to customize 90% of it to do what we need it to do. And they're just going to use it as kind of the skeleton framework and then customize everything. Whereas these other horizontal companies are just like every piece of software is a puzzle is a piece to the puzzle. And we're going to use some, every project is going to use a different set of puzzle pieces to put it together. Two completely different scenarios there. Um, do you have any thoughts about kind of a, that you know, differentiating yourself either way and where you kind of see things going, because going back to your initial thought there about systematizing architecture versus the bespoke building, there's a lot less bespoke buildings needed in the world than there is systematized architecture. But a lot of architects just focus on the bespoke part. That's why all these other companies are popping up and and offering to take care of the systematized architecture, because that's, that is the other 99% to bring it back to the beginning. Yeah. So I spent some time working at WeWork, which was a vertically integrated company. Mm -hmm. Uh, They do everything, or they did at that time, everything from design to construction to operations. And I mean, that was a wonderful environment to work in, both because it had that kind of scope and it was well-funded to do all that work. But also, I think there's something that you kind of learn when you're in that environment where you're getting feedback from these projects because you see the life cycle of the project you're not just in one kind of segment yeah. of it you're getting a lot of kind of feedback that you can feedback that you can put back into the kind of process of, mm-hmm. of designing spaces so i personally like really enjoyed that and it was really different for me in a way of kind of approaching design and thinking about design um, but i also see the kind of benefits of this kind of wider model where i think quite often clients aren't in a great position to know when they need to engage an architect so you know you can think of it like going to a doctor right like often we only go to a doctor when something's gone really really wrong um, and we're having a heart attack or something you know 
But the better way to kind of approach that would be to be in regular contact with the doctor and maybe the doctor doesn't need to perform surgery on you every time, but maybe they suggest changes to your diet or changes to your lifestyle that improves how you're kind of doing in life. And so I think there is kind of that room for like a consultancy that also advises and helps clients through these problems that aren't just kind of, or aren't always architectural that they're kind of before that. And particularly in an environment where there is say a lot of vertical integration, I think you still need some kind of intermediary within there, helping clients understand the kind of strategy for negotiating, working out how you kind of situate yourself within that kind of large ecosystem. Mm. Yeah, the, the term that I've heard used for that is solutions provider, right? Like you, you don't necessarily always hone in, again, to go back to what we talked about earlier, that the, the solution is a building. It, it's just, it's an option. I mean, it's, it is something we have expertise with, but it might not be the answer. Like you said, it might be just, maybe we identify a bottleneck in your existing building that can be reconfigured and everything works much better than it does now. And it is kind of interesting to think about it that way because I think a lot of clients do come to architects thinking the answer is a building. And by then, it's kind of like the architect's ready to do that. <laughs> sure, right? Uh, it's not necessarily like they're going to say, you know, you really don't need this. I think that that's, that's, that's also a, a tide that I'm seeing start to shift with there does seem to be a higher level of kind of citizenship. And I think we're really feeling it now with, with COVID-19 where there's a lot of empty buildings, right? So the answer is almost definitely, I shouldn't say that, but you know what I mean? It's, it's just like, there's so many empty buildings. Why is the answer a new building? So I think that there's a lot of struggle and, but also a lot of kind of scrutiny being placed on that right now. And I'm hoping that people who are kind of working in this technology side of things are working on that side of it as well that the answer is not always a new building and they really are thinking about reuse and restructuring and reorganization and really being sustainable about that kind of thing that was all over the place i apologize for that it's just kind of stream of consciousness thinking but it it does seem like there is there is starting to i'm starting to see some changes in the in the thinking behind that it at a lot of firms a lot of people yeah i think I'd have been fr- kind of Frank Duffy saying that uh, the profession is kind of predisposed to or addicted almost to like yeah. designing buildings. And that is not, not necessarily the kind of way forward always. I mean, to be honest, like a company like WeWork has got its flaws, but I think one of the kind of more interesting aspects of it is that it is this adaptive reuse of office space. It's often overlooked in a city. It wasn't a class kind of office space. It was often B or C, and by putting the right kind of design tools in there, and often it was kind of the technology that drove that, right? Like being able to do things like laser scan these buildings that were not always square and orthogonal, right? Um, overcame a lot of the kind of trickiness of needing to renovate those spaces and allowed that kind of adaptive reuse of these um, old old spaces. Yeah, that that's a fascinating topic in itself. I, I went to an Autodesk University talk that was led by the scanning team at WeWork. And they were talking about how they would they had scanned a floor of a building, I think it was like the second floor of a building in New York to put a WeWork in it. And they realized that the floor was about two feet off, two feet lower elevation on one end of the building than the other. And it was just a slope. It was just a ramped slope the whole way. But you couldn't really perceive it because the floor plate was so large. 
and they scanned it and they were like, is this real? Like they, and, and what they found out by digging into the history of the building was that was a slaughterhouse and the floor was sloped for the blood of the pigs to drain out the side of the building, like crazy stuff. Right. And, and so to speak to your point about how like they're doing this adaptive reuse and realizing that in order to not have those changes happen during construction, when they're very expensive, they wanted to figure all that out up front so that no matter what space they went into, realizing that they were going to do a particular type of configuration, it made sense to have all that information up front. And it, it was just kind of an interesting way to think about it from a completely different angle because I think a lot of times architects walk in and the schedule is so tight and the budget is so tight and it's low bid and it's this and that that they're competing and less time on the job is better and all these things. We don't even look up to notice stuff like that. And then it does really, truly bite you later. So it's kind of an interesting kind of twist on that whole thing where it came, I don't know, did we work come from, it basically came from outside the architectural industry and it was, it's like this new layer of application using technology to cut out a bunch of that inefficiency and late ads of cost. Yeah. One of the co-founders of WeWork, Miguel, was an architect um, and he was responsible for a lot of the kind of early stage design. Okay. But yeah, it never operated in a kind of traditional architectural model. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And I guess going back to the kind of the future of the professions there, I mean, the Suskinds make this interesting observation at the end of their book where they're kind of talking about the way that the professions may evolve. And they Mm -hmm. kind of make this case that there's sort of going to be these two paths for a while that in one path, there's like a, a future where the professions are using technology to make themselves more efficient. They're using kind of, they're becoming more routine. They're finding ways to kind of standardize their process and they're getting better and better and more efficient. Right. And there's this other kind of path where there's these other entities that aren't even on that kind of professional track at all. And are doing delivering the same service but just in a completely different way and they kind of make the case that in the short term this kind of moved or this drive for like more efficiency and more um, productivity is probably going to succeed but in the long term it's going to be these companies on the on the other path that are going to sort of take over Mm. it's interesting to think about about that from the perspective of a large firm that's trying to do both of those things at the same time Oftentimes they'll have a vision for the future and they'll dedicate resources to that. But at the same time, we've got to get there. We've got this large amount of staff to feed and keep and keep that momentum going, feed the machine kind of mentality. It's kind of interesting to think that it's hard to do either one of those really well if you're trying to do both of them as well, right? So that's really where the advantage of these startups come in is they they have this fresh fresh approach from the very beginning and they're able to maneuver more quickly to adapt to changes and where things are going along the way because that's their nature. Yeah, and I think when you look at architecture firms that have tried to do things like launch products rather than just sell services, it's really difficult for them because they're used to accounting for their time as like putting a cost against that, right? And the right. idea that you would maybe put up a lot of time and not see any return on that investment and maybe only in a couple of years when things kind of take off, it's, it's quite hard for them to kind of overcome that bridge. And then I think the other kind of aspect of that, which 
kind of feeds into a lot of what we've been talking about in some ways, just the amount of money that's flowing into the industry right now from yeah. entities that aren't architecture firms that are going after this. Um, it's quite phenomenal. Like it's billions of dollars every year coming in and going into these kind of startups. And they're of course not trying to take over the architecture market because much like I guess the example with Autodesk earlier, like the architecture market is a smaller piece of this much larger kind of construction industry. And if you can kind of take a piece of that pie, you're, you're going to be set. But um, because architects are these kind of gatekeepers that stand in the way of a lot of that, a lot of these companies are finding ways to kind of route around architects or maybe are indifferent to whether or not architects are involved in that process um, mm-hmm. that they're kind of setting up. I was I was at a, a small tech conference in Katera was an architect actually from Katera was presenting and they had talked about their whole CLT platform and how they were using this kit of parts to then use that as the constraints for design. And um, obviously there's a lot of the project that they were talking about was modularized and systematized, but there was maybe one or two pieces of it that weren't, that were the more custom aspects of it. And obviously Katera has architects on staff. But it was interesting at the end during the Q&A, somebody raised their hand and asked like, well, what about what about architects? How do architects fit into this future? If this is, you know, obviously a ton of money had been poured into Katera. This was pr- probably in early 2019 that I saw this. So it wasn't mm-hmm. quite in the troubles it's in now. If you call $200 million overnight trouble, I don't know. But, <laughs> but, um, but you know, it's, it's, the answer was, what about architects? <laughs> it's not our problem. I think architects need to be reminded of this, is that people don't build buildings to employ architects. The industry doesn't move on, move along to keep you in your secure job. It's the other way around. Like You have to constantly adapt, and you have to be on the lookout, and you have to evolve. Um, and I think a lot of people are just so comfortable to kind of get back to where we started with Autodesk even, so comfortable using being dictated to how you're going to do it, what your playing field is, what software you're going to use, that it's hard to look up from that. And and it really is going to take some serious, um, I don't know the right word, but you, you've got to look up, you've got to pull yourself away from the modern drafting table and look at what's going on around us. Because there are so many things being written about this. You're obviously pointing at it a ton in the articles that you write. Um, Because it is, technology is changing this profession. And I think a lot of people ask the question, is technology changing the profession? Well, of course it is. Are you going to change with it? Like you get to decide and you actually are going to have to decide if you're going to change with it or not. Yeah. And I think like the example of Katira is really interesting, right? Because people see that and they see someone raising like billions of dollars. And I mean, I've presented Katira and presentations that I give and I get that question as well. Like, how do we even react to this? Mm-hmm. And I think the answer is that Katera may not be successful, but there are examples of kind of architecture firms that are looking at what's happening there and finding their own kind of path forward in that, which maybe doesn't involve raising billions of dollars, but does kind of change how they practice. Yeah. I mean, in that article that I wrote recently about kind of modular construction, one of the firms that I referenced, there's this small firm in New Zealand um, called Makers of Architecture. And the you know, like a group of sort of four friends that left university ended up buying a CNC machine and 
started kind of manufacturing their own homes out of plywood. And now they employ about 20 people. They do quite a few homes around the country. And they're not a billion-dollar venture-backed startup, but they are kind of finding their own path through the industry in this kind of modular construction, vertically integrated way, which it's their own path and their own way of kind of practicing. And I think there is something to be said for that, that you don't need to kind of go into that huge, huge Silicon Valley venture capital funding to to utilize and find ways to use this technology. In Absolutely. Practice. Yeah. I think like something that Kat Dovjenko and I talked about on a previous episode was the rise of kind of this very modularized, but with a limited shelf life, like thinking about architecture differently, even from its lifespan. Because I think, again, we're, we're kind of trained or preconditioned to think about architecture in a certain way only. And it's it's those people who are coming at it with a new approach or a fresh idea that are able to carve this path that is unique to the profession. It's different. And it works for them because they have that different point of view. So when you're talking about making something out of plywood, like, yeah, is it going to last forever? No. Does it need to last forever? Can it be recycled? Is it actually a better product because of that? Because it doesn't have to be taken care of for the next 60 years. I think that's kind of all an interesting way to frame it and think about it because it that is usually just like a set of givens that nobody even discusses. But now it seems like that a box is open. We should be rethinking everything. Why have we always done it like this? Yeah, I think the next 10 or 20 years are going to actually be a really exciting time in architecture. Um, I look at where, I mean, you speak to young people that are in architecture school, like where they want to work and none of them want to work at like, big with Zaha Hadid like they want to work at these like interesting like um startups and stuff like that and they all have ideas for how that kind of profession should change and I think there is an energy about that that will I think leave a kind of lasting and good impact on on the profession yeah well that's a super positive way to wrap up this conversation I'm excited about that too honestly feel like that energy is sorely needed right now in a a very uncertain time for a lot of firms that have been around for a long time and I think are doubling down on the way that they've always done things and not thinking about things in a fresh new way. The world is going to be different, just like technology is changing the profession, like it or not. The world is going to be different because of COVID-19, like it or not. How are you going to emerge from this on the other side? And it's, it's interesting to me and exciting to see this kind of newfound energy from a younger generation who does question why do we do it like the way that we do it and don't accept because it's the way we've always done it for an answer. Like that is a very dangerous statement. So thank you so much for taking the time to be here today. I really appreciate it. Is there a place online where you would like to send people to read more of your work and connect with you? Yeah, thanks for having me. You can go to danieldavis.com. It's got all my links. Um, Yeah, it was great. Great conversation. I appreciate your time today and uh, and thanks so much. We'll talk again soon. Thanks for listening to the Troxel Podcast. And once again, I would like to thank Arc IT for sponsoring this episode. Visit their website at getarcit, that's G-E-T-A-R-C-H-I-T dot com. This show is part of the Gable Media Podcast Network. You can see all the shows at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L-M-E-D-I-A.com. You can help support what I'm doing here by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts to help get the word out and, of course, share it with your friends. 
I'd love to hear from you, so leave a comment on the website at trxl.co slash podcast, where you can find every episode. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube. Just search for E. Troxel. Talk to you soon.